Guys, uh, thank you for joining us, Mr. Dawson. We really appreciate you uh, giving us this time and giving us this platform. Uh, we sincerely appreciate you. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, how's your family doing through this pandemic and how you guys been holding up? Everybody's fine. Uh, we've taken the liberty uh, to stay at home uh, as a family. Uh, that is, uh, my daughter, she is a state prosecutor. She's an attorney. My son works at a funeral home that I own, uh, but we all wanted to, you know, just stay together as a family. And, uh, well, it's been over a year now, uh, as you see, but we're, uh, we're holding up. We're all well. Everybody's uh, safe for the most part. And we just each and every day keep our fingers crossed and, you know, go on about our daily lives. Glad to hear that. Um, so how long um, after your playing career did you get into uh, the, the funeral home thing? How did that kind of start? Actually, it's been 12 years now that I've been the owner of uh, the business itself. And it sort of fell into my lap. I started out being an, an investor and pretty much uh, guaranteeing uh, the note on the business, that is the mortgage on the building. And like I said, it fell into my lap. And I had to make a decision if this is really something that I wanted to do, if I wanted to sell it or move forward with it because it was something that the community really needed. And I met with a couple of the pastors in the community. They gave me their blessings. And I had two uncles of mine who were retired and they wanted to come in, run the day-to-day -day operations. I really didn't feel that I would have the time to be an operator, but I also, with their blessings, they came in and uh, they just assumed other day-to-day -day activities. And like it's been 12 years, and uh, you know, we, as I just said, I got to put my best foot forward. I would have never thought that this would be something that I would have to entertain post-career. But it's like I tell tell my staff, and I continue to tell them, you don't know where God is going to lead you. And uh, with that in mind, I just uh, tried to make the most of it. And I look at it like it's kind of been a calling. Uh, a lot of people said that they felt that uh, if I had not been a baseball player, I would have been a preacher. I would have never saw that coming either. But I just, you know, I, I pray every day, especially during this pandemic, that uh, we continue uh, to use the proper protocol and uh, keep our staff safe first and foremost, and then uh, that of the public, uh, because uh, you don't know where it is and you don't know who's been contracted. Uh, so you just, you know, got to stay on top of what the protocol is. And uh, you've got to be sort of lucky, I think, too, in a sense. And uh, for the most part, uh, we have uh, really uh, haven't seen anyone with the staff get sick, but everybody is, uh, is doing their part. Uh, to make sure that we continue to service the families doing probably what is their worst moment in their life. And, and have you uh, seen an increase of these events, like people passing away from COVID or any COVID-related uh, deaths or anything of that nature? Uh, just touch on that a little bit. Well, we have had uh, business, I think, has been uh, pretty normal. Uh, we have had maybe at the, at the most 45 uh, COVID-related cases. And uh, what we had to do uh, was 
again, adhere to what the protocol is, and that is uh, sanitizing, uh, because people never knew initially what happened uh, with the disease once a person was deceased. So we had to really use uh, a, a lot of uh, strict uh, protocol when it came to sanitizing, uh, keeping the public safe, keeping the, the staff safe. And like I said, we uh, just go about it uh, as, as normal as possible. I try not to expose my staff to the COVID cases. Um, if at all possible, I will use a third party to do removals. I would do the same thing when it, when it came to embalming uh, the deceased. And when we had uh, services uh, of COVID individuals, I would put the ropes up to make sure that there was proper distancing. I just wanna make sure that uh, we just ad adhere to everything uh, within our necessary means to keep people as safe as possible. And we, I think that's a low number, 45. Uh, so it, it, in that regard, we uh, feel pretty lucky, but I think we've had a lot of cases where people have passed at home. We've had a lot of home removals as a result of people refusing to go to the hospital when uh, they were sick for whatever reason. And that's uh, really what has, uh, I think, shown a, an increase in volume when it uh, has come to the past year. Okay. Uh, and and uh, we're going to jump, going to like kind of switch switch gears a little bit here. Um, I wanted to talk about some of your numbers. Um, if, and just correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I'm looking at a 279 career batting average. I'm looking at 438 home runs, almost 1,600 RBIs, 1977 Rookie of the Year. 1987 National League MVP with our beloved Cubs, of course. Thank you for that. And I'm looking at four Silver Sluggers, eight-time All-Star, eight-time Gold Gloves, and a 2010 Hall of Fame inductee. So we just want to give you your praise and give you congratulations on a wonderful career. Thank you. So uh, your first game at Wrigley, how was it? My first game ever or my first game as a Cub? Oh, let's, I'm sorry. Let's jump back. Uh, so your first your first career game ever. How was that moment for you? Uh, my first career game, man, I, I don't know. I don't even remember that. Um, that would have, have been back in 1977 when I was a rookie. And I played so many games. there. All, all I can recall is stepping into this ballpark that you have heard so much. It had such rich, rich history behind it and uh, you always heard about the bleacher bombs that was uh, for me okay uh, they're gonna be to my left because I'm a center fielder and I just wanted to you know see what it was like especially during the summertime when you always saw on the television where they'd be out there sunbathing and you hear about how uh, cold it is always in Chicago but it didn't it didn't really matter but I, I was just you know, excited about all of the nostalgia surrounding uh, the, the ballpark, the city itself, uh, that organization, uh, which at the time, I, I wouldn't say that they weren't competitive. They had some good ball players, but being young as I was and, and being a rookie, I was excited. Uh, just the prospect of being and playing at that level and being able to be out on the same field, playing field, that is, with some of the stars that I had. Uh, grew up watching play and now uh, in their presence. 
Uh, did you play any other uh, sports before baseball? That was it, like football, basketball, anything like that involved? I played uh, football in high school. I actually got hurt playing football, had my knee uh, first knee surgery, and uh, it was kind of disappointing in a sense because it happened right before baseball season, and I really, really struggled my senior year. Uh, as a result, the scouts disappeared. I really didn't get a scholarship offer. I went to Florida a &M University as a walk-on, and I was eventually given a scholarship after making the starting lineup as a freshman. And from there, it was, it was pretty much a breeze. But football, I think back and I say, wow, why did I ever want to take up this sport anyway? Because I never really, uh, it, it didn't excite me. I played because my friends played and it helped to pass the time until baseball season. But I, I think back and if I had to do it all over again, no, I, I wouldn't have played football. But that's kind of like water under the bridge. You don't dwell on it too much. Baseball always was my passion, and I was still able to uh, perform at the next level following high school and eventually get drafted. All right. Uh, do you remember your first career home, um, your first career hit or your first career home run? Oh, yes. I remember both of those. My, <laughs> my first career hit, I got called up uh, right at the end of the AAA season with Denver, uh, the, the Expos team was in Pittsburgh, and I met them there. I, I started that game, and I didn't get a hit. I was 0 for 2, and then the next night we traveled from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia, and I was still in the lineup again, and I got my first hit, my very first at-bat in Philadelphia off of another Hall of Famer, Steve Carlton. And uh, that was exciting. Uh, I was told, you know, you better get to this guy, uh, swing the bat early because you don't want him to get ahead of you. And I took that approach to the plate, swinging first pitch fastball, which is what I got. I had a line drive to center field. My first home run came in Atlanta Stadium against Buzz Capra. And uh, I can remember, remember hitting the home run. I just missed Chief Nakahoma. They used to have a, a teepee set up out in left center field. And I hit the ball out near the teepee. It missed the teepee. And uh, I can recall him coming out of the teepee. He, he usually comes out and he dances. He does this, this Indian dance if an Atlanta Brave hit a home run. But I remember him coming out of the teepee. Uh, the ball missed the teepee. But that happened uh, just about late spring uh, against the Atlanta Braves in Atlanta. All right. Now, do you remember your last career home run or your last hit? Yes, my last career home run uh, was at uh, Joe Robbie Stadium when I was a member of the Florida Marlins. I was uh, summoned to pinch hit and uh, uh, I think the bottom of the eighth inning. And uh, even though we were winning the game, I uh, was called to come up and pinch hit, uh, which would have been my last at bat. Uh, as a as a Florida Marlin, uh, because we were getting ready to leave and go on a three-day road trip to end the season uh, against the Houston Astros. And Xavier Hernandez was the pitcher, and he tried to run a, a sinker off the plate in. He got too much of the plate. And I was able to hit the ball directly down the left field line. I kind of stood at home plate for a second or two, hoping that it wouldn't go foul. And I then proceeded to jog the first base, looking back at the third base umpire, and he signaled fair ball, and I'm like, wow, 
what a way to end my career. And I had thoughts of taking my jersey off, taking my cap off, and winging it into the stands. And as I got, <laughs> as I got to the dugout, I, I had all of the players coming out uh, to congratulate me, and it slipped my mind just that fast. And now once you go to the bench, you can't come back out and do it. And that would have been the, 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 the perfect moment for me to do that, just give my uniform away and go home. But that was my last home run, and that was my last hit. All right. Um, so uh, to piggyback off of that, um, do you re- like how did it feel? Like when did you know it was time to just uh, leave the game, like to retire and just you know go off into the sunset? Well, I played twenty plus years, and the thing about it is when you start thinking about it, it's time to retire because you don't really have the same passion. And uh, I wanted to play at the outset 15 years. I set a goal to play 15 years. And as I got to year 15, I still felt that I had a lot of baseball left in me. And then I, when I signed and uh, at the end of my tenure with the Boston Red Sox, I said, okay, um, because it was a strike shortened season, I said, well, this is just time to probably walk away from the game. And the funny thing about it is I, I I arrived home and I got a call from David Dombrowski, who was the general manager of the Florida Marlins. And he was, he was looking for a fourth outfielder, per se, not necessarily a starter. And he wanted a veteran presence in his clubhouse with a young ball club. And I thought about it and I said, do I really want to do this? And I, I went home and I consulted with my wife and, Ask what was her opinion. And she said, well, you know, you are going to be at home. You be in your own bed. And the fact that I didn't have to play every day kind of uh, played volumes also. And I just made the decision, okay, I'll, uh, I'll entertain it for what it's worth. Uh, at least I'll get the opportunity to let uh, my family, some hometown fans, see me one last year. And I took up the opportunity to play for the Marlins. And at the end of that year, they wanted me to come back another year. And I said, wow, I, I, okay. I went back, I played a second year. And at the end of that tenure, I just said, you know what? Uh, my body is beat up. The kids are young. They need a little bit more quality time. It's, it's time to walk away from this and uh, be with your family. And that's, you know, when I made the decision, okay, uh, after 20 years, I'm, I'm going to pass the torch and move on. All right. Sounds good. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Frank for just a moment. He has a couple of announcements he wants to make. So, Frank, take it away. Yes, just because there, there's so many people here. As you know, we have over a thousand students. We want to just let you all know uh, the best organized way to get your questions across. Uh, if you are a teacher or a staff member, uh, the best option is to use the uh, raise your hand feature and then we would turn on your mic and you can ask your question directly uh, to our guests. The second option, if you are a staff member, use the chat. Uh, if you are from a school or an administrator, if you could send a text to me directly with the student's name and their grade, uh, that will work. As you all know from chat rooms, they move pretty fast and they can get lost. So uh, my number, 773-559-7929. Uh, 
All right, David, back to you. I'm sorry, I was on I was on mute. Can you hear me, guys? Yes. Okay. Uh Mr. Dawson, I was I was wondering where you got the nickname Hawk from. I was curious to know that. That was given to me at a very early age from one of my uncles. I uh, was out watching them practice, and at the end of their practice, they would let me come on the field. One would throw me some BP, the other would hit me ground balls. And if a ball took a bad hop and kind of like ricocheted off a certain part of my body, I'd pounce on it. And he said, uh, it was simple. He just said, you know, you don't really fear the baseball for a kid your age. You see, if anything, he said, you, you're on it like a hawk. And he just started calling me hawk. I don't, I don't know how it was, would stick all those years. My family nickname was Pudgy. I was never really a fat kid, though. <laughs> and I, all those years are stuck. And uh, players, teammates felt that it was because of that intense scowl that I would have on the field. But uh, that was my form of uh, concentration. But, yeah, it started at a very early age, probably uh, around the age of seven or eight years old. Okay, and who were some people that you looked up to, like idols, like whether it be in baseball or family members or whoever, anybody you looked up to that, you know, helped you along the way? Well, my heroes in the game itself was Henry Aaron, uh, Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle, because those were the individuals that kind of stayed out in uh, press clippings and on television. And growing up, I had an uncle that played in the Pittsburgh Pirates minor league organization. Uh, he was a he was a big mentor of mine. My two uncles uh, uh, were chief mentors. My grandmother, I have to give total due to my grandmother because she was like my mother. And she was the one that kind of consoled me for the most part. And I learned, I had a lot of early teachings about the importance of understanding, you know, what it is to be blessed and the importance of getting down on your knees and being thankful of your blessings. And uh, she was the one that I always looked up to, would talk to her about whatever. My mom was like my big sister. I was the first born of eight siblings. And my mom, you know, she said this, as long as you don't get in any trouble, then, you know, I'm not going to sweat you too much. And like I said, she was like a big sister to me, but my grandmother was like that real central mother figure. All right. Uh, let's see here. What else we have for you? Uh, 2010. Uh, take us back to when you got that call. Oh, you to the Hall of Fame. What, were you, what were your thoughts? What was going to be? Yeah, I'm sure you probably did, but you take us to that process of you know how that went for you. Well, not to get too long-winded uh, with the answer. Uh, after being on the ballot for nine years. I felt that that was a window for me. And I did get the call later on in the day and I didn't really want to jinx it, uh, but I just felt that because there was no one uh, ahead of me to really hurdle, that that would be a pivotal year for me. And my grandmother, I went to that gravesite because uh, they, they both passed before I got the call. And I just thank them for putting me in the position to 
be where I was at that point in my life, the impact that they had in my life. And it was a bittersweet moment for me, but I did get the call and I felt that, okay, now it's, it's come full circle. And I never really played the game with that in mind, but you know, just to get that call, it was, it was a very, very exciting moment. And as I said, I, I just think at that point, my career had come full circle. That's awesome. Uh, so I know we got a large uh, number of questions that's probably hitting the queue right now. So I got one more for you. Um, where were you in 2016 when the Cubs won the World Series? Well, when they actually won the World Series, the, the final game, I was here at home in South Florida. I, I was up in Chicago and I was up for game four and five. I actually threw out the first pitch in game four. And I witnessed that game because I had a, a, a real, real sincere feeling that, okay, this is finally going to happen. But in all understanding, there was uh, an opportunity for me in Chicago to do a appearance if the Cubs won the World Series. If they lost, uh, the same appearance was going to be done by a Cleveland Indian retired player by the name of Kenny Lofton. And I didn't want to pack. I, I sat, I watched the game for seven innings and the Cubs were winning. And I said, well, maybe, you know, I better go and throw something together because I have a 6 a.m. flight. And just that fast, I come back to watch the remainder of the game and the score is tied. And I said, oh, my God, I jinxed them. <laughs> now... I sit through the next couple of innings and I'm sort of pouncing back and forth, nervous energy that was, and it starts raining. Now we're in a rain delay and I'm on um, uh, Eastern Standard Time, so it's an hour difference. And I just said to myself, uh, boy, I jinxed them and, you know, it's going to be another one of those what if years. And it stops raining and, of course, play resumes and, I get to witness uh, the end of the game. The Cubs win. They win the World Series. And now I got to watch. I got to watch the – I got to watch the celebration. And that lasted all of an hour. And I said, wow, I better get to bed because I got to be up in a couple of hours. And I was actually able to get to Chicago the next day due to appearance, which was slated to start out at Wrigley Field itself with Fanatics and Uber. And I didn't stay for the parade itself. I – I flew back home. I, once I heard that it was going to be an excess of maybe a couple of million people, I didn't. I didn't really want to be in the middle of that. Right. Uh, so was, my wife made the trip. I mean, my wife, my daughter made the trip with me, and uh, she wanted to stay. And I told, her, I said, "Listen, uh, just try and find the parade route, which would have uh, come through downtown." She had a friend of hers that went to law school with her, and she was going to stay at her friend's place and watch the procession as it came through downtown. But I was able to get back on a flight and make it home in time to witness the parade itself on the MLB network. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Frank. Uh, you got a uh, guest waiting to ask questions? Uh, yes, we're going to start with uh, Deb, who I believe has uh, four uh, student questions from her school. Uh, so go ahead, Deb. Hey guys. Hey Andre. All right, guys. Here's my class. Girls, turn around, say hi. Good afternoon. <laughs> they're so they're pretty excited. Um, 
Let me step outside because I'm doing a. What we were wondering is how did players like Jackie Robinson and Ernie Banks pave the way for your acceptance in the MLB? Um, like, what did they have to go through for you guys to be accepted by the, both the fans and the organization? And when you came in the mid seventies, how was it at that time coming into the MLB? Well, you're talking about uh, trailblazers, uh, individuals that had support and made it such a, a wonderful experience for individuals like myself to look forward to. And you can't really imagine uh, what they had to endure, but you can only uh, listen to some of the stories that were being told and uh, maybe some of the footage, uh, if that was available. But they were heroes in a sense. Uh, Larry Doby Jr., who was Larry Doby Sr., I'm sorry, who was the first uh, African-American American League player, was my first hidden instructor. And uh, he never really wanted to talk about uh, some of the things he had to endure. He would make a comment like, at some point, you'll probably read about it so you can understand and be aware and learn that way, you know, what a lot of African-Americans had to endure. But I say they were heroes in a sense because uh, we played at a time, or I should say I played at a time uh, when uh, it was very easily to be accepted at that level. And you, you learned how to keep your mouth closed and go about what it is that you were doing, uh, not really uh, look at being labeled a troublemaker. And after I got the opportunity to do the same thing with the players that followed me, the one thing I would say is you got to understand, you know, what it is that you are playing this game and why you out there playing the game. First, you were blessed with the talent and ability, and you've been fortunate uh, to come to this particular point in time where you are given an opportunity to perform at that level. It doesn't happen to many, many people. There's a hand select few. So make the most of it. Keep your mouth closed mm -hmm. and play the game and make as much money as long as you can. And um, again, I just say that, you know, they were the individuals who we looked up to, they were aspiring in a sense. And uh, I uh, can honestly say that they were role models because being an African-American and seeing that at a very early age, it got me to the point in time where it, it put me in a position that was the only thing I really wanted to do in life. I can't imagine how hard that must have been for you guys not to say anything. I mean, I've heard stories of Jackie Robinson and what he had to do and he just, you know, kind of grit his teeth and went through the motions because he wanted to be there so bad. But by doing that, he actually opened up doors for so many other people. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, all right. We're going to go to a staff member with the hand up, uh, Laura O'Shea. Got to unmute Laura. Yep. There we go. Nope. One more time, Laura. One more time. Hey, Laura, un unmute, Laura, one more time. Unmute, one more time. There we go. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay. Hi, Andre, thanks for coming. Uh, it's wonderful that you're joining us today. Thank you. Uh, my question is, what is your all-time favorite moment playing at Wrigley Field? My all-time favorite moment had to be, and I had so, so many. 
Uh, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> probably uh, was, and, and it, it didn't even involve me playing the game itself. It was when uh, my son was born. Uh, we uh, caught a flight back from the, the West Coast, and my wife went into labor that morning. I was hoping that we would get back in time uh, so that I could witness the birth. And she went into labor, and we had a game that day. And I was able to, to get to the ballpark. I was scratched from the starting lineup. And uh, Darius, uh, he was born about uh, 1.15 in the afternoon. And I left the hospital. I went to the ballpark uh, thinking that, okay, uh, maybe I can still get in, a, get in the lineup at some point. But they weren't going to use me at all. The team won the game, and I was presented with uh, the game ball, which uh, was autographed and I dedicated to him, to him. And I gave it to him when he was old enough to understand exactly what it was. It was a uh, game ball. Uh, dedicated to you uh, being born from uh, a game played on you on the day of your birth in Wrigley Field. Wow, that's amazing. Great story. Thank you, Andre. You're welcome. All right. Uh, Principal Michelle Blackley from Daniel Wright has a question from eighth grader Chavant, who would like to know if you ever felt judged or treated differently by opposing teams because you were Black. No, I haven't uh, felt at all at any point uh, during my career. Uh, one thing I must say, you know, I I was one of those individuals that um, was was really looked up to in the in the in the clubhouse. Uh, so I had uh, the respect of my teammates. I will say this though: I did get some hate mail once I left Montreal and first arrived in Chicago. And uh, I, I kind of feel safe to say this I because I used to always look at it jokingly and say to Sean Dunstan, who uh, was locked next to me in Ryan Sandberg, I say, wow, I said, I'm getting hate mail. Uh, and I look at, uh, you know, where it's coming from, where it's postmarked, and it says Chicago. So I say, it can't be Cub fans. It's got to be White Sox fans. <laughs> And uh, they just chuckle at it, chuckle at it. But uh, no, I, it, it never really phased me. But as, as far as uh, from the fans, you get harassed and razzed because you're the opposition. But uh, racially, no, that was that was never really anything, you know, that I would say came and I had to come across our experience. Mr. Right. Uh, real quick, Frank, let me jump in real quick. I just had a question about. Um, I know you played in Boston and Fenway. I just wanted to get like just a quick like how was that? Like was it any issues like with the fans or uh any incidents that you may remember or was everything pretty much, you know, on up and up? No, I I enjoyed uh playing in Boston. I didn't really like the American League because it was completely different. Uh the the cities, the ballparks, but the fan base in Boston uh, really reminded me of the fan base in Chicago because they supported the ball club. They came out in droves and uh, they were baseball historians. Uh, and they allowed you to go out and just, you know, enjoy yourself. Uh, so for me, it was, I, I got the opportunity to play in uh, two of uh, the most intricate ballparks that was around, that being Wrigley Field and, 
and uh, out in Fenway. And I would say the fan base, they treated me exceptional. Okay. Thank you. I just, I just, I was, I was always curious when I saw you playing for the Red Sox. It was just curiosity. So, uh, yeah, go ahead, Frank. Take over. All right. Uh, Noah, Noah Wright. Uh, hello. Really appreciate you doing this. I think we have the same uh, birthday, which is pretty cool. Nonetheless, um, in 1987, you had um, 49 home runs and 137 RBIs washed through that year. And did you think that, wow, did you think that like, like something was different about that year? Like, do you feel it in like the clubhouse? Well, there were a lot of things that were different uh, about that year. I lost my grandmother uh, back in the early part of the year and I didn't have a job per se. Uh, I was a free agent and it was during the era of collusion, but I wasn't signed with anyone. And I took the liberty of going to spring training and giving the Cubs a blank contract and letting them pay me what they felt I was worth. And that was how I got to Wrigley Field. So I didn't really set any goals that year. I just dedicated it to my grandmother. But I, I was a different kind of an animal that year. I was on a mission. And the good thing about it is I was on a natural playing surface, that is grass. And that, for the most part, kept me healthy the entirety of the season. And it just was one of those incidents where I, I, I think I kind of pressed a little bit early on, uh, maybe the first couple of weeks. But things got rolling. I hit a grand slam home run in St. Louis off of Todd Warrell. And that really got me going uh, from that particular moment it just appeared that things were starting to happen on a daily basis and uh it was exciting it was a it was a new start for me the fans embraced me uh, once I stepped foot with the organization out uh, in Arizona when I, I signed that blank contract and uh they started salaming to me in right field uh, they created Andre's army and it was just a joy every day to go out and play the game and to perform before the, the, the hometown fans. And by season's end, I had put together perhaps a career year, the best year of my career. And I knew that I had, I, I was reminded that I had been finished runner up to the MVP award twice while playing in Montreal. But uh, that was a year for the ages. And I, I, I often think back on, wow, you know, why can I put together maybe another one or two of those? But I think it catapulted me to uh, the point of, okay, the second half of my career should be a very productive one. And I just felt at that point, my better years were still, still ahead of me. And I look back at 1987 and it was one of those wild moments. And uh, I owe a lot to the regular fans who just fueled me day in and day out. All right, uh, Jordan L. from Daniel Wright Junior High wants to know, who are your favorite teammates to play with? I had a number of them. There was, it was Timmy Raines in Montreal, Warren Cromartie, Ellis Valentine, obviously. Raines uh, was like a little brother to me. And uh, he named his second son, who we shared the same birth date, actually, uh, Andre. And uh, I'm his godfather. And then, you know, I got to Chicago. There was, of course, Sean Dunstan, uh, Ryan Sandberg. Um, there, were, there were a lot of individuals. You, you, one thing about uh, playing the game and playing the game 
for a long time is you develop so many relationships. People are constantly in and out of your life. Uh, some of the relationships you like to forget about, obviously, but uh, I played with a lot of wonderful ball players, and um, it was exciting for me to uh, be able to share that, uh, you know, uh, because you are like uh, a family in a sense, uh, being that you are in each other's companies for about six months out of the year. But Al Oliver, uh, Tony Perez, uh, people who I looked up to, Pete Rose, uh, they were individuals who uh, I kind of could question about the game itself and I learned from their valuable expertise and experience. So I look back there a lot, but Tim Raines is probably the one that I'm the closest to. All right. Uh, we had a classroom on the screen, but I don't see them anymore. So let's go to uh, Larry Bryce. Thank you very much for taking your time today. Hope it's nice and warm in Florida. It's Cubs convention weather here. Um, you did it kind of answer my question about the blank contract, but do you think any other player today would do anything like that? No, they won't do that today. It's, it's too much money being passed around and the agents, first of all, wouldn't, wouldn't let them do that. But, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I, I look back at that experience and even though I realized that uh, the writing was on the wall that I was going to probably have to take a cut and pay. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I had the leverage in that say so. If I was going to take a cut and pay, it was going to be somewhere where I wanted to go. And uh, I realized that I couldn't really negotiate with a ball club. So uh, I put faith in uh, my uh, ability to play the game and to to be protective at the game and monetary issues, um, it, it, it wasn't a matter at that particular time. It was about getting to where I wanted to be, which was Chicago under whatever circumstance and moving forward. But uh, sir, no, I, that, that it, it had never been done. It would never be done again. All right, uh, eighth grader Jamari wants to know, what was the worst game you've played in weather-wise? Worst game, whether if, if the game in Chicago comes to mind, we were looking for probably a postponement uh, because there was a blizzard. It, it was snowing so hard you couldn't see five feet in front of you. And this probably went on for all of about an hour. For whatever reason, they waited around. I, I, I guess the, the weather report said something uh, to the imagination of, you know, it's going to stop and we're going to be able to get this game in. We were able to uh, resume play. Uh, I should say start the game itself. And it did. Uh, we did get light floors during the game and play the game and, and finish the game. But there was one other that comes to mind. It was opening day Cincinnati. And um, with God as my witness, I actually saw, I saw it snow. I saw it rain, I saw it hail, all within a three-hour period. And we were able to play the game and finish the game. And it was, it was frigid temperatures, but I saw those different elements all in the same day. 
All right. Uh, we're going to go to uh, see that classroom back. It's now uh, Leela Desu. I'm saying that right. Uh, Leela Desu. Got a question there in that classroom? There he is. Uh oh. Right, you got a question? You got to unmute, maybe? You're on mute. Go ahead. No, you're, you're ready. Go ahead. We hear you. He's, he's saying he has an issue with the view. Right. Uh, okay. I will come back. Let's go to uh, I, is it Iona, I believe I see here. Uh, Iona, go ahead, Iona. Hi there. Oh. Hi, we have uh, some eighth graders here at Daniel Wright. You want to know what it was like being in Chicago in your younger years? I wish I could have been there a little bit longer than the six years that I was there. Uh, very, very exciting time during my playing career. Both of my kids were born in Chicago, and it was a turning point in my career, if I must say so, because I was where I wanted to be. I was having. Um, a lot of lot of fun and uh, accomplishing a lot of things, both on and off the field. And I look at it now as like my second home. I I, I wouldn't uh, want to go through what I, I guess what everyone is experiencing at this point because it's right now it's about eighty degrees here in South Florida. Not to rub it in. Uh, I too just, late. <laughs> I just uh, I I really. Uh, can honestly say that, you know, Chicago uh, was the brightest spot during my playing career. And I uh, can honestly also say that uh, my kids, uh, you know, enjoyed the time that they were there and a lot of fun and exciting moments. What was your right. favorite place to eat at? Oh, go ahead. All right. My favorite place to eat? Uh-huh. Oh, my God. So so many, oh, so many uh Wonderful restaurants. I, I I frequent frequent Gibson's a lot uh, because I'm I'm a big fan of that dessert that they have. <laughs> it's, it's it's ice cream uh, that has I think it's uh, macadamia nuts with wow. with milk chocolate melted on top of it, and it's. My, I, 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 I'm, I'm thinking about it now as I describe it, but <laughs> I always I, I frequent Gibson's pretty much every time I go to Chicago. But I'm also 
a big deep dish pizza when I, I got to do the fast food. So, uh, but Chicago has so many, so many. Bob Chin's was one of my favorites, even though it was out in the suburbs. Uh, there, there's too many. There's, there's so many great restaurants uh, just in that little downtown section alone. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Thank you. Go ahead, Frank. All right. Uh, let's go to uh, Renee Hutchison. Hi. Thanks for taking the time, Andre. Two questions. Yeah. Who was the toughest pitcher you ever faced? And also, which is the hardest pitch to hit? The toughest pitcher I ever faced, uh, I say Bruce Suter a lot because Bruce Suter brought in the split finger. It was a pitch you had never seen, and uh, you didn't really get to see him a lot because he was a closer. Uh, so you had to envision how do I make the adjustment to, to him. Uh, but I would say I, I really had um, below marginal success against him. John Smoltz was tough. I had not as tough a go at it against a lot of the Hall of Famers, a lot of the power pitchers, uh, because it was, to me, strength against strength. I would say the toughest pitch to hit is the the slider, uh, because it's on the same plane as the fastball, uh, and it's probably a few miles per hour slower uh, than the fastball. Uh, the breaking balls um, pretty much, you know, you got to adjust to when you're at that level. If you can become a good breaking ball hitter, then you can have better success. I was always strength against strength. I like the fastball, but I learned how uh, to recognize and hit the slider. Uh, once I got to the big leagues, I had to make that adjustment because uh, they will eat you alive because they will continue to attack you that way if you don't make the adjustment. All right, I'm going to try to get these uh, last couple of classrooms that are on the screen before our time runs out. So let me go to uh, Miss Wallace. Okay. Um, so my question is, uh, what, what was your favorite team to play against when you were in the MLB? Favorite team against? I had a lot of success against the Cincinnati Reds, uh, against the, the St. Louis Cardinals, um, and the Atlanta Braves. Uh, I, I always felt that I was a warm weather ball player, and and you probably want to know why would I uh, feel that way, being that I had to play in Montreal, Boston, and Chicago. <laughs> but it just appeared that once uh, once the weather took a turn. Uh, from the cold to the warmer climate that I, you know, start to see the numbers go up. But uh, those teams kind of jump out at me uh, as having the most success against. All right. Uh, Carrie Stuckey wants to know, did you want to enter the Hall of Fame as a Cub? Is that what you wanted? Yes, I, uh, I it was really important to me. And I was disappointed uh, with the Hall of Fame uh, for not really sitting down. Uh, we were supposed to discuss which cap I was uh, going to wear into the Hall of Fame, which we never did. I think, uh, as they pointed out, uh, once they made the announcement that uh, I was going to go in as an expo based on uh, the history uh, of the game. And 
uh, being that I played that 10 years, they felt that that's the cap I should wear. But uh, I had a different opinion. I, um, I had my own reasons why I wanted to go in as a cub. And it really didn't happen. Uh, but, you know, the, the main thing was getting to the Hall of Fame. But in my Hall of Fame speak, Hall of Fame speech, I'm sorry, I did acknowledge the importance of uh, what the Cub fans meant to me in my playing career and why I would take the liberty to uh, think of myself as a Cub, uh, a, a Cub life.